Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. Democracy Now! is funded by you, not by the weapons manufacturers when we cover war or gun violence, not by the oil, gas, coal or nuclear companies when we cover the climate catastrophe. If you believe in the power of independent media, please make your donation today of $5 or $10 or $5 or $10 a month or any amount at democracynow.org. Every dollar makes a difference, especially because generous donors are matching your contribution dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! Everyone agreed that default would be the worst outcome, a horrible situation for America and America's families. But we also agreed that we need to pass a bipartisan bill with bipartisan support in both chambers. I asked Speaker McCarthy, does he agree with that? And he said yes. And his bill, of course, is not a bipartisan bill. The United States comes closer to defaulting on its debt for the first time ever as Republicans continue to push for sweeping budget cuts. Some Democrats like AOC have vowed to push back on nearly any significant concession. We'll speak with the American Prospect editor Robert Kuttner about what he's calling the budget farce, a travesty in two acts. Then the U.S. should be a force for peace in the world. That's the headline of a full-page New York Times ad signed by 15 former high-ranking national security officials calling for a diplomatic end to the Russia-Ukraine war. We thought it was important that we signal to the president and the members of Congress that the time is now to stop this war and bring it to a peaceful end. We'll speak with Dennis Fritz, retired command chief master sergeant of the U.S. Air Force. Then 38 years ago, Philadelphia dropped a bomb on the house of the black radical group move known as MOVE. I've just been advised that we have new videotape of uh, the episode that apparently ended, we think ended, the uh, MOVE situation tonight, the dropping of an incendiary device. And let's take a careful look at this 5.27 p.m. State police helicopter drops it. There is the explosion. As you can see, a very dramatic explosion that occurs 30 seconds and really rips into the MOVE compound. We'll speak with Mike Africa Jr., who played in the MOVE house as a child before it was bombed, about how the city seized the house using eminent domain and turned it into a police substation before selling it to developers and why he's trying to buy it back. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In North Carolina, Republican lawmakers have banned almost all abortions after 12 weeks of pregnancy by overriding North Carolina Democratic Governor Roy Cooper's veto of the abortion ban. Protesters inside the state capitol began chanting, shame, 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 Tuesday night, after the North Carolina Senate and House approved the ban. With 72 having voted in the affirmative and 48 in the negative, the motion carries. The House has overridden the governor's veto and the bill becomes law, notwithstanding the governor's objections.
Republican lawmakers in North Carolina secured a veto-proof majority in April when a longtime Democrat, Trisha Cotham, defected and became a Republican. North Carolina Democratic State Representative Julie Van Hafen blasted the new abortion ban. It certainly feels to many people in this chamber and watching tonight that this bill is being rushed through because members know that this devastating ban on abortion is deeply unpopular. You've already heard from many others tonight about how this bill will hurt women in our state, how it will hurt business, how it will hurt families, how it will hurt women coming here from other states to seek health care. So why? Why are we doing this? Why are you so determined to subvert the popular will of our state? Meanwhile, in Nebraska, conservative lawmakers have advanced a bill to ban abortions after 12 weeks of pregnancy, while also banning gender-affirming medical care for trans youth. Nebraska State Senator Michaela Kavanaugh, who made headlines for an earlier filibuster to stall the anti-trans bill, criticized lawmakers for pushing through the new legislation. Women will die. Children are dying. It is your fault. It is your fault. And you are allowing it to happen. You do literally have blood on your hands. And if you vote for this, you will have buckets and buckets of blood on your hands. Voters went to the polls Tuesday in Pennsylvania, Kentucky and Florida. Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron, who's a close ally of Mitch McConnell, won the Republican primary for Kentucky governor. He'll face Democratic Governor Andy Beshear in November. In Jacksonville, Florida, Democrat Donna Deegan pulled off a shocking upset over her Republican rival to become Jacksonville next mayor. Jacksonville had been the most populous city in the country with a Republican mayor. She'll be the first first Democratic mayor of Jacksonville. In Philadelphia, Sherelle Parker won a crowded Democratic mayoral primary. Parker had campaigned in part on hiring more police officers while embracing the police tactic known as stop and frisk. In the heavily Democratic city, Parker appears set to become the first woman and first black woman to run Philadelphia. President Biden's announced he's cutting short his trip to Asia as negotiations continue over lifting the debt ceiling in order to avoid the United States defaulting on its debt for the first time. On Tuesday, Biden met with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and other congressional leaders at the White House, but little progress was reported. McCarthy continues to push for sweeping budget cuts and new work requirements for recipients of the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, known as SNAP. We'll have more on the debt talks after headlines. President Biden's flying to Japan today for a meeting of the G7 in Hiroshima. The White House has announced he'll return to Washington after the summit instead of going to Papua New Guinea and Australia as planned. Biden was supposed to meet with leaders from Pacific Island nations and the so-called Quad. Biden would have been the first U.S. president ever to visit Papua New Guinea. At the G7, leaders are expected to discuss imposing new sanctions on Russia, including a ban on Russian gas imports through pipelines connecting to Germany and Poland. Biden will become just the second U.S. president after Barack Obama to visit Hiroshima, where a U.S. nuclear attack in 1945 killed 140,000 people and seriously injured another 100,000. Ahead of the talks, the Nobel Prize-winning international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons called on G7 member nations 
nations to unequivocally condemn any and all threats to use nuclear warheads and to sign the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. They were joined in their call by survivors of the 1945 U.S. nuclear attack on Hiroshima, known as Habakusha, like 85-year-old Turuka Yahata. I want them, the G7 leaders, to seriously acknowledge the inhumanity of nuclear weapons. These are weapons that can destroy humankind. I want them to strongly feel that these are terrible things and that they have to be abolished. A Chinese special envoy has arrived in Ukraine as part of a Chinese-led effort to end the 15-month-old war. The envoy, Li Hui, is expected to also visit Russia, Poland, France and Germany. Meanwhile, the South African president, Cyril Ramaphosa, has announced that leaders from six African nations will soon visit Moscow and Kyiv on a peace mission. Ramaphosa said he recently spoke with Russian President Vladimir Putin and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. My discussions with the two leaders demonstrated that they are both ready to receive African leaders and to have a discussion on how this conflict can be brought to an end. In other news on the war, Russia is claiming it's destroyed a U.S.-made Patriot missile defense system in Kyiv that had been used earlier in the week to intercept a barrage of Russian strikes, including six hypersonic missiles. U.S. and Ukrainian officials have admitted the missile defense system had been damaged but said it was not destroyed. Meanwhile, the head of Ukraine's Supreme Court has been dismissed after he was detained as part of a probe into corruption and bribery. A new report from the Cost of War Project at Brown University is estimating at least 4.5 million people have died as a consequence of the wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, Syria, Yemen, Libya and Somalia after the United States launched its so-called War on Terror following the September 11th attacks. The report also estimates 7.6 million children are suffering today from acute malnutrition in these countries. In Ecuador, lawmakers have begun an impeachment process against President Guillermo Lasso, who is accused of corruption and embezzlement in a scheme involving a state-owned oil transportation company. Ecuador's National Assembly held its first hearing Tuesday, where Lasso addressed lawmakers and denied involvement in the scheme, which opponents of Lasso say cost Ecuador millions in losses. Meanwhile, there's speculation Lasso could move to invoke a constitutional power that would allow him to dissolve the legislature and rule by decree. The U.S. Forest Service has approved a key permit for the proposed $6.6 billion Mountain Valley pipeline to run through part of the Jefferson National Forest in Virginia and West Virginia. Conservation and climate groups have been trying to block the fracked gas pipeline for years. In a statement, the Wilderness Society said, quote, the Forest Service has bent to the will of the oil and gas industry and is placing fossil fuel profits above our environment and public safety, unquote. One key backer of the pipeline has been West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin. The Department of Education in Florida is investigating a fifth-grade teacher for showing her class an animated Disney movie that includes a gay character. The teacher said she picked the film, Strange World, as part of a lesson on ecosystems, plants and animals, but a parent filed a complaint after learning one of the characters in the film was gay. The teacher, Jenna Barbie, talked about the investigation in a video on TikTok. <laughs> 
Uh, the reason I was turned in is because one of the split students was a school board member's daughter. That school board member is currently on a rampage to get rid of every form of representation out of our schools. She even spent days this past week going to all the high schools to get rid of anything that had to do with representation whatsoever. She even had admin escort her to a teacher's classroom that had a sticker of a black hand and a white hand holding hands and the white hand had a different color fingernail for every finger. So the school board member called the Department of Education on me for indoctrination before ever coming to our school to talk with me or admin about the situation. Education officials say the screening of the Disney film might have violated Florida's so-called Don't Say Gay law, which bans teachers from talking about sexual orientation and gender identity. New research into healthcare inequities in the United States shows higher mortality rates among black communities resulted in a staggering 1.63 million excess deaths in the past 20 years compared to the white population. One study says the COVID-19 pandemic's disproportionate impact on black communities erased years of progress in attempting to close the healthcare gap. Black people are also far more likely to die at a younger age than white people due to the impacts of longstanding discrimination in access to health insurance, medical care, housing, employment, and other living necessities. The Justice Department is facing calls to investigate Donald Trump's attorney and former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani for allegedly plotting to sell presidential pardons. On Monday, a former associate of Giuliani's, Noel Dumpy, filed a $10 million lawsuit against him for sexual assault. Dunphy also accused Giuliani of scheming to sell pardons for $2 million to be split between him and Donald Trump who would grant the pardons. In 2021, the CIA whistleblower John Kiriakou also revealed an aide to Giuliani had told him a pardon would cost $2 million. Kiriakou appeared on Democracy Now! in 2021 and talked about meeting Giuliani at the Trump Hotel in Washington during the summer of 2020. One of his aides who was there at the meeting then said to me, Rudy doesn't talk about pardons. You have to talk to me and he's going to ask you for two million dollars. And I laughed and I said, I don't have two million dollars. I said, are you out of your mind? Two million dollars. Why would I spend two million dollars to recover a seven hundred thousand dollar pension? That doesn't make any sense. And I dropped it. But he said that that's what the, the price was. And in news from Capitol Hill, California Democratic Congressmember Robert Garcia has introduced a resolution to expel Republican Congressmember George Santos, who was indicted last week by the Justice Department for wire fraud, money laundering and theft of public funds. Garcia introduced the resolution through a process called a privilege motion in an attempt to force the House to vote on it within two days. Santos would be expelled if two thirds of the House supported the motion. In a statement, Garcia said, quote, George Santos is a fraud and a liar, and he needs to be expelled by the House. Republicans now have a chance to demonstrate to Americans that an admitted criminal should not serve in the House of Representatives, he said. The Advocate newspaper has noted Garcia is the first out gay immigrant elected to Congress, while Santos is the first gay Republican elected to Congress while publicly out. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. With the United States just two weeks away from possibly defaulting on its debt for the first time ever, President Biden says he's cutting short his Asia trip in order to continue negotiations with congressional leaders over lifting the debt ceiling. 
It's disappointing that our discussions in the congressional Republicans have not been willing to discuss raising revenues, but the policy differences between the parties should not stop Congress from avoiding default. I made clear again today's meeting that default is not an option. America pays its debts, pays its bills, and there will be plenty of time to debate the policy differences. But the country is never, we've never defaulted on our debt, and we never will. On Tuesday, Biden met with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and other congressional leaders at the White House. But little progress was reported. This is McCarthy. The great thing about this is in our bill, Limit, Save, Grow, not only are we able to grow our economy, we get more people into the workforce by work requirements, lift people out of poverty. Um, it helps our supply chain, makes us less dependent upon China, lower the energy cost. Um, that helps with the environment around the world, lowers the CO2 emissions globally. Republican House Speaker McCarthy continues to push for sweeping budget cuts, as well as new work requirements for recipients of SNAP. That's the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Democratic Senator John Fetterman of Pennsylvania said Tuesday he, quote, cannot in good conscience support a debt ceiling proposal that pushes people into poverty. Democratic Congress member Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said Biden can, quote, expect pushback on nearly any significant concession. Meanwhile, Democratic Congress member Jamal Bowman of New York said, quote, I'm frustrated we even have to engage in these conversations because it gives credibility to what Republicans are trying to do, which is pretty much hold the global economy hostage to fake as if they are fiscally responsible when they're not. Well, for more on all of this, we're joined by Robert Kuttner, the co-founder and co-editor of The American Prospect. He wrote a piece Tuesday headlined The Budget Farce, a travesty in two acts. Bob, welcome back to Democracy Now! Start off by talking about where these budget talks are, what a not raising the debt ceiling would mean, and why you're calling it a farce. Thank you, and it's great to be back with you, Amy. Um, okay, let's back up two steps. So on January 19th, the United States technically uh, reached the congressionally approved limit in the national debt. This happens all the time. And due to a bunch of gimmicks, they were able to keep paying interest on the debt through the month of May. June 1 is generally acknowledged to be D-Day when uh, the government can no longer pay interest on the debt. And the whole global economy explodes because there's about $20 trillion worth of treasury bonds out there in the world that anchor the world economy. And most people think this is uh, just inconceivable. So um, for the first 97 days, uh, Biden did not negotiate with McCarthy because McCarthy hadn't passed a bill. And the White House calculated that the Republicans were so split that the Republicans would not be able to pass their version of a budget. Then McCarthy made all kinds of deals with the far, far, far right and passed this kind of crazy uh, bill that basically ties an increase in the debt ceiling to budget cuts uh, of uh, trillions of dollars, about 22 percent of domestic spending. Now, this is a complete non-starter from the point of view of virtually every Democrat in the House or Senate. This put Biden in a bit of a tactical bind. Do you, on the one hand, continue to say, this is crazy, I'm not going to negotiate? 
or do you go through the motions of negotiating because Wall Street and the media and some corporate Democrats are saying, well, at least you have to try in good faith to see if you can reach accommodation, because obviously this is a fool's game. It's a farce. It's a charade. So my criticism of Biden, and I should say, I've been relatively favorable to Biden. I mean, he was a pleasant surprise. He was more progressive in a lot of his appointees than we expected. But Biden is screwing up the tactics of this because he's mixing his message. On the one hand, he's saying, look, this is nuts. We're not going to negotiate. But on the other hand, succumbing to the pressure to look like he's negotiating, he's going through the motions of negotiating. And you kind of you can't have it both ways. Bowman is right. There's no way uh, Democrats are going to vote for 22 percent cuts in domestic spending. And by the way, it's not just SNAP, it's Medicaid. It's Medicaid. Uh, McCarthy wants work requirements for Medicaid. So picture somebody in a Medicaid nursing home, which is the biggest single source of Medicaid outlays. You know, sorry, Grandma, you're 90 years old and you have dementia, but you're going to have to go out and work. This is nuts. And it, it would be much better strategically for Biden to keep pointing out just how nuts this is. Um I wanted to read from New York Times columnist Paul Krugman, who slammed Democrats, writing, quote, As soon as Republicans took control of the House last November, it was obvious they would try to take the economy hostage by refusing to raise the federal debt limit. After all, that's what they did in 2011. And hard as it may be to believe, the Tea Party Republicans were sober and sane compared to the MAGA crew. So it was also obvious that the Biden administration needed a strategy to head off the looming crisis. More and more, however, it looks as if there never was a strategy beyond wishful thinking. They're talking about, well, we're not linking one to the other. These are two separate conversations. Um, what do you say to that, Bob Kuttner? Well, uh, two things. Uh, number one, um, and this has been very widely reported, and Biden is mixing his message on this as well, you can invoke the 14th Amendment because after the Civil War, a clause in the 14th Amendment specifies that the debt of the United States shall not be questioned. Now, that was put in there to prevent some future Congress uh, from uh, repudiating uh, the Civil War debt if, uh, you know, uh, uh, people who were friendly to Dixie ever got control of the U.S. Congress, which tragically they did. But that's very broad language. And it wasn't until 1917, during World War One that Congress even contrived this ritual of having a separate vote on the debt ceiling, the, the pre-existing uh, premise was that if something has been negotiated and obligations have been incurred, it's just automatic that uh, the debt is increased. So the betting is that if uh, if Biden were to invoke the 14th Amendment clause and say, well, we're just going to keep on paying bills. And if uh, the Republicans want to sue us, go ahead. People who've looked carefully at Supreme Court uh, precedents think that at least five members of even this Supreme Court would uphold Biden. Uh, so, uh, unfortunately, Biden has spoken out of both sides of his mouth on this. He said, yeah, he'd consider it, but it would take too long. In fact, that's not true. There would be expedited Supreme Court review of this. Uh, Janet Yellen unhelpfully has said, oh, that would cause a constitutional crisis. So Biden can control the messaging of his own team and he can't even control his own messaging, which sort of reinforces the view that maybe he's too old to run for president again. But that's another 
that's another uh, conversation. Now, there's another part of this, which is the incredibly stupid precedent uh, of 2011, where two separate things were mixed up, conflated by Republicans. The issue of increasing the debt ceiling, and again, that's normally just routine, and the issue of using that leverage to extract draconian budget cuts. The Republicans really rolled the Democrats that time. And in 2011, they passed something called the Budget Control Act, which had 10 years of mandatory cuts with a sequester system to enforce automatic cuts if Congress cannot agree on the details. And here's the absolute worst part. The emissary of the Obama administration who negotiated this terrible deal with his old friend Mitch McConnell was a guy named Joe Biden, uh, the vice president at the time. And so there are two ways of looking at uh, where Biden is now, either because he loves to cut deals. Uh, he is in danger of recapitulating, repeating the really dumb strategy of 2011. Or conversely, you could say, well, things are different now. He's president. He's got five trillion dollars of spending to defend. This is his legacy. And if he can just figure out how to keep his line straight, uh, maybe he'll hang tough. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's dismissed the proposal to mint a one trillion dollar platinum coin to keep the U.S. from defaulting on the national debt and said the Federal Reserve is unlikely to consider it. Um, in the Wall Street Journal interview this past January, Yellen said, quote, it truly is not by any means to be taken as a given that the Fed would do it. And I think especially with something that's a gimmick, the Fed is not required to accept it. There's no requirement on the part of the Fed. It's up to uh, them what to do. Is this a gimmick, Bob? Uh uh, let me put it this way. I, I, it's a tactic. Uh, I think invoking the 14th Amendment is probably a better tactic. And given the crazy things the Fed has done with interest rates and with uh, failing to regulate banks, uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't trust the Fed. So I, I'd rather see President Biden invoke the 14th Amendment. I think that probably would pass muster with the Supreme Court. It would solve the crisis for now. But the other thing I pointed out in this article is even if we get through uh, uh, the uh, June 1st deadline for increasing the national debt, then the next uh, installment in this two-part farce is uh, the fiscal 24 budget negotiations. The, the current budget expires on September 30, 2023, and then you've got to negotiate next year's budget. And the problem is that um, Democrats control the House of the Senate very, very narrowly. We've got Manchin, Cinema, so... They just barely control the Senate. And of course, Republicans barely control the House. But given the fact that you have divided control of Congress, uh, it's almost certain that there will be some budget cuts uh, in the 2024 budget. Now, as somebody who thinks that Bill Clinton was one of the worst things ever to happen to the Democratic Party and the country, it pains me to credit Bill Clinton for anything. But in 95, 96, when Newt Gingrich was uh, speaker and the Republicans played this game of holding the debt ceiling hostage and then shutting down the government first for six days, then for 15 days, Clinton hung tough. And uh, it was Gingrich who had a cave in. Gingrich eventually lost his speakership. Uh, the fact that Gingrich made a fool of himself by shutting down the government actually helped Clinton get reelected. 
So that's the role model. If if the president hangs tough and lets the government do stupid things like threatening uh, the collapse of the world economy or shutting down the government, uh, the Republicans take the blame for that. And I just hope that when this if Biden gets through June, uh, he's going to face a version of this again uh, in October, although granted, shutting down the government is not quite as catastrophic as shutting down the world economy. But I hope he reads his history. I hope he keeps his line straight. And if he can hang as tough as Clinton did, uh, maybe this will rebound to the benefit of the Democrats and the budget cuts will not be all that catastrophic. Uh, and finally, if you could just underscore, we just have a minute, how this connects and deepens inequality in this country. Well, all of the elements that the Republicans want to cut from the budget are things that make this a slightly better country. Everything from Section 8 housing aid to Medicaid to food stamps uh to college aid, I mean, the so-called discretionary domestic programs, these are the things that make the country uh, a slightly less unequal place. And of course, as you would expect, that's the stuff that the Republicans are targeting for the steepest cuts. Robert Kuttner, I want to thank you for being with us, co-founder and co-editor of The American Prospect. We'll link to your piece, The Budget Force, A Travesty in Two Acts. Bob Kuttner's latest book is titled Going Big, FDR's Legacy, Biden's New Deal and the Struggle to Save Democracy. Robert Kuttner is also a professor at Brandeis University's Heller School. Next up, the U.S. should be a force for peace in the world. That's the headline of a full-page New York Times ad signed by 15 former high-ranking national security officials calling for a diplomatic end to the Russia-Ukraine war. We'll speak with the lead signatory, Dennis Fritz, retired command chief master sergeant of the U.S. Air Force. Stay with us. Yeah, yeah, yes. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A group of former high-ranking national security officials published an open letter in The New York Times Tuesday calling for a diplomatic end to the Russia-Ukraine war. The letter was signed by 15 retired military officials and national security experts, including Ronald Reagan's ambassador to the USSR. They're all part of the Eisenhower Media Network. The headline reads, The U.S. Should Be a Force for Peace in the World. It begins... 
The Russia-Ukraine war has been an unmitigated disaster. Hundreds of thousands have been killed or wounded. Millions have been displaced. Environmental and economic destruction have been incalculable. Future devastation could be exponentially greater as nuclear powers creep ever closer toward open war. For more, we're joined by the lead signatory on this open letter to President Biden published in The New York Times yesterday. Dennis Fritz is director of the Eisenhower Media Network. He's a retired command chief master sergeant of the U.S. Air Force. Welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. If you can talk about the origins of this letter and why you felt it was so important to publish. Well, first of all, Amy, thanks for having me. And uh, that is the perfect and first uh, most important segue question you could ask. You know, uh, for us who have been around the military, the national security uh, business for many of years, we thought it was so important that we purchased this ad. You know, we took the small budget we have and we decided that uh, we should put this out there so that we could uh, openly uh, get the message to President Biden and his administration, along with Congress, that we must bring this you know, war to an end uh, immediately. As you already have discussed about the uh, devastation and the number of killings that have happened so far, I can only see it continuing. And as we continue to introduce uh, more weapons, it only causes more death and destruction. And this is, you know, to be quite frank with you, in support of the Ukrainian people. You know, it really disturbs me, and I'm just going to be candid with you, Amy, that, uh, you know, at the expense of the Ukrainian people, we're fighting a proxy war with Russia to weaken them. And at the same time, the death and destruction is occurring in Ukraine and its people. And uh, that's, that's devastating. And we just couldn't sit back and allow that to happen, as you, you know, mentioned. You know, we have, uh, you know, a former ambassador uh, to Russia, you know, that tried to alert uh, administrations of the past that uh, expanding NATO, uh, that is uh, a security uh, interest of Russia. You know, we have a tendency to not to empathize with others' uh, security needs. And uh, there could have been a lot done in the past to prevent this from actually happening. So now Russia has invaded Ukraine. It's been a year. What do you think the terms of the negotiations should be? I mean, our latest news in the headlines, a Chinese special envoy has arrived in Ukraine as part of a Chinese-led effort to end the 15-month-old war. Um, Xi Jinping uh, just spoke with uh, Volodymyr Zelensky for the first time, and they set up this meeting. Do you hold out hope for that? And just what should be the terms of the negotiations, Chief Fritz? Well, Amy, that, that would actually be up uh, to the Ukrainian leadership and President Zelensky, um, along with, you know, negotiating with Russia. But let me just first say that, uh, you know, in, negotiate, in negotiations, you know, you're always going to have to uh, give up something. So I will think the first uh, need would be let's stop the fighting and then let's listen and to see what Russia's needs and security uh needs are. And I think that's what led us here is because of the fact as Russia was expressing their security needs of Russia, of us expanding closer to the borders of Russia. I mean, look at it as you look at the piece that we uh, purchased yesterday. If you look at a map that we provided, you know, if you back an animal, you've heard this old saying, if you back an animal up against the wall, uh, 
it's going to react. It's going to defend itself. And as I mentioned earlier, we have a tendency to not to empathize with the security needs of others. Uh, if you know, we had a hypothetical uh, map of what would it look like if we had uh, Russian munitions, uh, personnel assigned in Canada, in Mexico. We would actually lose our minds. And that is what Russia is against right now. So the first step in the negotiation process should be actually listening to Russia. They've been trying to warn us for years that uh, the expansion of NATO is a concern of theirs. And so the first thing we have to come to the table is to actually, you know, listen to Russian needs and then whatever decisions abided by. You know, I know one of the biggest things right now is the Dabas Eastern region where we have Russian speaking um, Ukrainians. Uh, those needs must be addressed. You know, there's been a war going on there for the longest and Russia you know, tried to stay out of it with the Minsk Accords, and um, they tried to abide by it. And, um, you know, the Ukrainian government at the time uh, was still bombarding the uh, the Donbass region. So that has to be discussed. The issue of Crimea would need to be discussed because I, I think that needs to be a part of the negotiation table because uh, the Black Sea is, a, is an important um, part of the world for Russia. And so, you know, the first step will be to actually sit down at the table and have uh, an opportunity to listen to what Russia's security needs, as well as Ukrainian's needs and also uh, NATO. I wanted to go to Pentagon it, Papers whistleblower Dan Ellsberg, uh, who we spoke to earlier this month about his deep concerns about the risk of nuclear war as the tensions between the U.S., Russia and China intensify. When Biden is urged you know, we've to send direct planes that, that Ukrainians can't yet operate, like the F-16, tanks uh, that the, uh, they cannot yet operate, the tendency to send Americans to operate those tanks and get them right away into business will be very strong along with that. I can only hope that Biden will be pressed by a large part of the public, pressed not to involve the U.S. directly in that war and to be pursuing negotiations, which it is currently absolutely uh, eschewing, is rejecting the idea of negotiation. The belief that we can do less bad by striking first than if we strike second is what confronts us in Ukraine with a real possibility of a nuclear war coming out of this conflict. In other words, of most life on Earth, not all, most life on Earth being extinguished as a matter of the control of Crimea or the Donbass or Taiwan. That's insane. Again, that's Daniel Ellsberg, perhaps the world's most famous whistleblower who released the Pentagon Papers to the press, just diagnosed with unoperable um, pancreatic cancer, said he absolutely wanted to discuss this issue, that this was the message that he wants to put out to the world at this point in his life, is this threat of—and people think of massive nuclear weapons. He said it's the low-level tactical weapons that are just as dangerous dangerous, low-level tactical nuclear weapons. Command Chief Dennis Fritz, your response. Let me just mention when you say tactical weapons, uh, you know, guess what? That can escalate to uh, intercontinental uh, ballistic missiles as well, carrying nuclear weapons. So the escalation is the key. Uh, regarding uh, Mr. Ellsberg, you know, we've been in communication with him 
Uh, in fact, we even, you know, coordinated and talked with him about our letter. And Amy, I must tell you, uh, I spent uh, a few years in, at the time, Space Command, where our land-based missile systems were under the commander um, who I advised at the time. I was also, uh, as part of an additional duty, an advisor uh, to the NATO commander. Uh, not the NATO commander, but I'm sorry, but the NORAD commander. And I can tell you, I've been in and out of the Pentagon since the age of 22. Now, I am now 66 years old. The majority of my life has been in and out of the Pentagon. And this is probably the most fearful I've ever been uh, with a nuclear uh, escalation. We're talking about two nuclear powers. We're talking about a country, that country being Russia, who for years we have tried to humiliate by way of us. We're the, we won the Cold War. We're the only superpower. We do as we please. Well, I can tell you right now, you know, Russia loves their country as well. And, you know, I must be quite frank again, you know, we are the only country to ever, ever use an atomic weapon or a nuclear weapon on another country. I don't think Russia will sit back and let us be the first to do that again. And so I take their uh, threat of uh, not uh, taking off their plate the use of nuclear weapons, I take that seriously. And so that is why, once again, we thought it was so important for us to send that open letter out to the president. And so we're, our hope is to educate the American public so that they could see how we got to this point. After, and, um, after and I, this open letter that you have published in The New York Times, this full page, the U.S. should be a force for peace in the world, did other national mm -hmm. security officials get in touch with you? Oh, yes, we had others uh, to get in touch with us. And I, I must tell you, Amy, to be quite frank, is that uh, some of those uh, individuals didn't think we went farther enough. Uh, in our um, message of their concern about escalation to uh, nuclear warfare. And I can tell you, you know, we've uh, been approached by some to say, you know, that's fear-mongering. Well, I don't think it's fear-mongering. I, I, in fact, I want you to be fearful because of the fact we're, you know, close to that, you know, point. Can you imagine, you know, a few months back, you know, we had an Aaron— um, missile uh, to land in Poland. You know, it could be an accident. It could be something that's on purpose. I mean, how long do you think Russia is going to allow weapons to uh, be entered uh, into Ukraine? And let me just mention something else, too, that uh, Daniel uh, mentioned. You know, I find it amazing when I had said earlier that uh, we, Ukraine is fighting a proxy war on behalf of us. Well, think about this for a moment. Here it is. We're introducing some of these weapons. But, oh, by the way, Ukraine, uh, there will be no offensive weapons where that you can um, strike deep into Russia. We won't allow that. Why won't we allow that? Well, that could escalate it. Uh, that could escalate to the point where Russia, you know, gets to the point and says, listen, you're introducing uh, these weapons that are hitting deep into our country. Uh, we're not going to allow that. That is a threat to our national security. And so all bets are off now. And so this can become a all out war. And uh, Russia is not going to lose this war. And so if it becomes a threat to their country and their uh, leadership, uh, let it be no doubt in your mind. There's no doubt in my mind.
that if it came to that, they would actually use a nuclear weapon. And Are what you particularly then? concerned because of the drone attack on the Kremlin? It is not clear who was involved with this, who was behind this drone attack. Well, well see, that's true. Uh, you know, you always have disinformation in warfare. But think about this, Amy. That's exactly what I'm talking about. It can be an accident. Uh, it could be a white flag. Something that uh, we will not expect that could actually, let's say, for instance, you know, some have said it was Russia, which I don't think so. But let's say if it, was, it was them and that gave them the rationale to deepen the war. And let me just mention one other thing, too, as we keep prolonging this war, because one of the things we're really concerned about as well, as we continue to prolong this war. But guess what? That is more death and destruction in Ukraine. It could get to the point where there will be no country uh, for there to be uh, peace because Russia, if they so desired, could destroy every piece of infrastructure in Ukraine. Do we want to see that? You were the chief. You are the chief signatory on this. And the force behind this is the Eisenhower Media Network. Explain what that is. Well, the Eisenhower Media Network, we came together. I, I think the thread that really brought us together uh, was the Iraq War. Uh, you know, it's definitely one was based on a lie. And uh, as you saw what we did to Iraq, you know, destroyed uh, that country, uh, millions of lives lost uh, on the American side of the house. You know, 4,500 military members killed, 100,000 or more, you know, injured for life. If, uh so we came together to try to keep us out of unnecessary wars, uh, to keep us out of that imperialistic ideology that uh, some of us in our country uh, have. So that was the piece that brought us together. And when you think about the expansion of NATO, uh, when you think about these continuous wars, there is somebody that's benefiting from that. And uh, so our goal is to limit that benefit of the military industrial complex, which Eisenhower you know, warned us about. And so that's where we got the name from. So our goal is to limit uh, wars, uh, to limit the, the benefits of, of war, which, as you, you know, the money that we give Ukraine for weapons, uh, that money is going somewhere. Somebody is making those weapons and it's beneficial to them. I don't think the lives of people should be beneficial uh, for those that uh, benefit from war. Dennis Fritz, we want to thank you for being with us, director of the Eisenhower Media Network, retired command chief master sergeant of the U.S. Air Force, speaking to us from Washington, D.C. Next up, 38 years ago, Philadelphia dropped a bomb on the house of the black radical group known as MOVE. Then they seized the home turned it into a police substation before selling it to developers. We'll speak with a second-generation MOVE member who's trying to buy the house back. Back in 30 seconds. And when I was seven in suburban heaven Teachers and elders and police They'd cover my ears so I wouldn't hear The gunshots soar through those city streets And if anyone questioned the Liberty Bomb Or why the timers were even wound A scolding they'd heard And so we soon learned to save a city Burn the 
Save a City by Mischief Brew about the move bombing. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we turn to an update on a story Democracy Now! has followed for years. This past Saturday, May 13th, marked the 38th anniversary of the day the city of Philadelphia bombed its own citizens. On that day in 1985, police surrounded the home of MOVE, a black radical uh, liberation organization that was defying orders to vacate. Police flooded the home with water, filled the house with tear gas, and blasted the house with automatic weapons, all failing to dislodge the residents. Finally, police dropped a bomb on the house from a helicopter. Eleven people were killed, six adults and five children. The fire burned an entire city block to the ground, destroying over 60 homes. This is how the bombing was initially reported in Philadelphia on WCAU-TV. I've just been advised that we have new videotape of uh, the episode that apparently ended, we think ended, the uh, move situation tonight, the dropping of an incendiary device. And let's take a careful look at this. 5.27 p.m., state police helicopter drops it. There is the explosion. As you can see, a very dramatic explosion that occurs 30 seconds and really rips into the move compound. There you see the bunker, which soon will go up in flames. And that was the explosion close up. Now, if there's anybody there, standing there, it's obvious they couldn't survive that explosion. In 2021, we reported that Philadelphia activist and writer Abdulali Mohammed learned that the bones from one or two of the children killed in that 1985 move bombing, Tree and Delicia Africa, were being used by Princeton University and the University of Pennsylvania's Penn Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology in an online video course without the family's knowledge or consent. The police bombing, May 13, 1985, came after an earlier standoff with MOVE in 1978 ended in a hail of police gunfire, leaving one police officer dead. MOVE members say they didn't fire a shot and that the officer was a victim of friendly fire. Nevertheless, nine of them were convicted of his murder and given life sentences. One of them, Debbie Africa, secretly gave birth in her jail cell. Just five weeks into her sentence, she managed to keep her son, Mike Africa Jr., with her for three days before alerting the guards. Seven of the nine of the Move Nine are now free after serving 40 years. Two died in prison. Well, for more, we're joined by Mike Africa Jr., who's launched a Reclaim Osage campaign and announced he's put a down payment on the house Philadelphia bombed in 1985 in order to reclaim it after the city used eminent domain to seize it and turn it into a police substation. He's the co-author of the book, 50 Years on a Move. Mike, welcome back to Democracy Now! Can you lay out what happened to the house at 6221 Osage Avenue in the bombing and afterwards? First of all, let me just say thank you for having me, Amy. It's a real pleasure to be here today. Um, yeah, I can lay out. So, you know, you laid it out really well. What happened in the, in the police, you know, the bombing of MOVE um, happened because members of the MOVE organization that lived at 6221 Osage Avenue were fighting to get my parents and the other members of the MOVE 9 released from prison. And the city's response to that was to drop a bomb. 
and in that they they didn't just drop a bomb to dislodge a bunker as Ramona Africa the lone adult survivor talks about it she says they came out there to kill and if you look at the evidence it's clear move members move children were shot as they were trying to leave the burning building they were shot by police and after they were shot their bodies were picked up and thrown back into the fire so um it it was just it was the most horrific and darkest day in, in my life in probably Philadelphia history. Mike, talk about how old you were. And you played with these other kids, right, in the house. Yeah, so in the 70s, my, uh, the adults took us to um, a secret location to get the, to get the children away from the, Phila- the confrontational atmosphere in Philadelphia. So all of the children that were in the house, I remember we were all— in that uh, secret move uh, second uh, chapter. And we were also uh, all, all together in an abusive orphanage after we were taken from that other location by police as well. So I, I knew every single one of them. We all played together. We laughed together. We ate together. We slept together. We cried together. We were a family. So <clears throat> I'm not going to ask you to remember prison when your mom gave birth to you because you were just there for, <laughs> what, three days? But it is astounding that she kept her pregnancy and your birth secret from the guards with the help of other prison mates for a few days so she could bond with you before you were taken away. Is that right? It's quite a miracle. I, when I think about it, it's hard to believe it's true. It's hard to believe it's me. And when she, when Janet Africa announced to the judge that, you know, um, Debbie gave birth to a baby, the judge didn't believe it. The guards that were actually on duty that were supposed to be watching the cell to make sure that they knew when she gave birth, they didn't know it either. So, you know, I think that's a testament to the strength and exercise activities and, you know, to and the strength of my mother. You know, she just... She's just an incredible person, and uh, that didn't start so Mike, <laughs> when, when I was born. Your mom was released from prison in 2018. It's now 2023. Can you talk about the provenance of this house? So it's bombed, but what's left becomes a police substation, and then the police sold it to the city, sold it to a developer. Explain. And then talk about when you came into this picture and what it was like for you to return to this house of such carnage, where six move adults and five children had been killed. Yeah. So after the bombing, the city turned the property—well, they first they took the home from my great-aunt Louise James, who was the owner of the house, and her son, Frank Africa, he died in the house. Louise was the sister of John Africa, my great-uncle. And, you know, Move was in the house, and just as much as the neighbors wanted Move out of that house, my great-aunt Louise began to want them out, too, because of the conflict and whatnot within—you know, just internally infighting. And um, but the city, they they after they dropped the bomb, they took the house through eminent domain and then they turned it into a police substation. They Wilson Good sent welcome back to the community letters to the residents after their homes were rebuilt. And my great aunt never received one of those letters. Once they had the house, once the city had the house, they turned it into a police substation that remained that way. A developer came in. Uh, through this gentrification sweep in Philadelphia and and sold it. The city sold it to him for a dollar. 
I called the city and said that I'd like to buy the house. It's our house. And the solicitor said, we're not selling the house to you for any money. You're not supposed to have this house. Not even so, a $1.50. Uh, not, not even $1.50 or $300,000. But what happened, how I got the house was the, the person that lived in the house that bought it from that developer, he, he told me that he, I saw him on May 13, 2022. He saw me on the street. We were doing our annual commemoration, commemoration for the lives that were stolen. And he reached out to me and said that he couldn't get any peace living in that house. He said every time he turned around, every time he opened, he said, he said, me and my wife don't even use the front door because every time we do open the door, we our cameras in our face, you know, so we, we don't have any privacy. We want out. Do you want to buy the house? And I tell you, it was like how they say, like birthing a baby. I've never birthed a baby before, but I've heard about it. I've seen it a couple of times. It took nine months. Typically, it takes 45 to 60 days, but it took us nine months to actually close on the property just for a down payment. But the, the, the seller is not a developer. He's not a city person. He's just a regular average citizen. And he sold the house for market value, which turned out to be $400,000. So I was able to put a down payment down, but I was not able to come up with $400,000. So now I'm hoping that the city and what I'm calling the Reclaim Osage campaign. I'm hoping that they will support the the efforts to pay the house off. It would be great if they would take some of that um, excess money that they use for non-healing projects and help heal in this situation. Are you thinking of making this a memorial, a museum? You know, that's a really good question. A lot of people have been asking me that. I think, you know, the house is zoned as a residential house. And I certainly don't want to cause any more harm to the community, the neighbors. I mean, there are people that are original Osage neighbors that still live there today. And I don't want to do anything that would create another disruption in their lives. They've been through so much. I think a lot of what they've been through get overshadowed because 11 people died and five of them were children. But the neighbors deserve respect. So I think we have to really, really figure out how to move with uh, with with peace and freedom and um, but also like respect. So we'll we'll have to see about that. For our radio listeners, uh, Mike is wearing a hat that says hashtag Reclaim Osage. Mike Africa Jr., I want to thank you so much for being with us. Second generation move member, co-author of the book, 50 Years on a Move. Just put a down payment on the move house that was bombed by the city of Philadelphia. That does it for our show. Oh, an update on one of our headlines at the beginning of the show. Ecuador's conservative president, Guillermo Lasso, has dissolved the opposition-led National Assembly, blocking efforts by lawmakers to impeach him amidst accusations of corruption and embezzlement. The constitutional power, which had never been used in Ecuador before, allows Lasso to rule by decree until new elections can be held. We'll have more on this story tomorrow on Democracy Now! That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Fels, Mike Burke, Dina Desdra, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warrenoff, Sharina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Tamari Astu, Joe John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Honey Masood, and Sanji Lopez. Our executive directors, Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Stelly, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo, Miguel Nagara, Hugh Grant, Dennis Moynihan, David Prue, 
Mahmoud and Dennis McCormick. Oh, and congratulations to Juan, to Juan Gonzalez, on the graduation of his daughter, Gabriella. Congratulations, Gabriella. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.